0: All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. It is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic.
1: Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out.
0: Okay, welcome back to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard, and I'm really excited about tonight's show uh, today's guest is Ken Wiley, and he's an author, uh, a mountain guide, and more importantly, I think a facilitator of people who are on journeys of transformation and change. And he's got a ton of deep insight into the human experience and leadership, and what makes groups make good decisions and bad decisions, and what what how do we manage risk in both a wilderness context, but just more broadly in life? How do we understand some of these these deeper? truths about what it is to to be a human in in the world and so hopefully that doesn't set the bar too high for you ken as far as what we're going to talk about today but welcome to the show i'm excited for our i'm sure it will will be a wide-ranging conversation about all things you know humans and nature thanks jeff it's really great to spend this time with you yeah, well, I appreciate um your journey and you, your willingness to share your journey of, I guess, learning and growth, and you know the the transformative power of nature. I think that's probably where we first crossed paths or connected was around kind of nature and the the transformative power of it i think probably when i was working at enviros with wilderness uh, therapy program i think we connected and we had a good i remember a phone call with you while i was driving to work i think one day uh, where we, we we chatted about this kind of thing so why don't you fill us in on you know broad strokes high level what is it that you find yourself up to these days um and yeah what do you what do you do
1: um i work with the brave people who um who have been been down a road of some sort and they realize that they they're interested in reflecting on what, um, what they've done, um, and, and begin a process of making meaning. Um, it's interesting because when I, um, I spent many years working for Outward Bound in the U- in the United States and, in, and here in Canada and, and interestingly, what has, um, what I noticed while working those programs, often 21 and 22 days long, is that we do all these really technical climbs and you know descents down rivers and and really um, um, you know geared towards the typical adventure uh, education. And what people found most powerful, though, was solo even though most people were reticent to go out on solo, the single most transformative uh, experience on the course for them was, was solo. I remember one course in, in Joshua tree in 1988, we only had an hour and we put the students out on solo for an hour and people came back in tears and, and, and so, you know, in reflecting on my own life and how much time that I've spent in the technical realm, um, you know, really wonderful experiences—I wouldn't trade them trade them for anything. But um, now I spend my time facilitating in solitude myself, and/or facilitating those kinds of experiences for people. Um, and and the reason why I say I work with the brave is that it is—it takes an intrepid individual to stop what they're doing and tar- start, taking stock. Mm-hmm. And, um, and doing that in nature is, is pretty profound. Broad breaststrokes. I think the thing that, um, brought me to this place was, um, an avalanche tragedy that happened in 2003. Um, I was working as an assistant guide and seven of our clients were killed and the thing that was required of me was to stop and and metabolize, process and make meaning of and and be accountable for, um And you know, probably, you know, that's where where um, I guess this this story begins is um, sitting down to write um, to write about that experience and and go through a process of in a, in a sense, growing up. Um, growing up and and becoming accountable for um, ways of being and
0: decisions and, and all of it. Safe to assume that that was a a significant turning point in, in your, in your life trajectory, that, that accident. And.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it was, you know, metaphorically it was it was it was a reflection of how i was living my life i was i i wasn't living my my life on the surface of things or i wasn't living my life honestly and, and and with with clarity i was everything i was doing was kind of buried under several different layers of you know of things and and so when i found myself under the snow and then when i was dug out and you know slapped across my face by my clients and told to wake up. Um, that was a powerful experience. And, but waking up to a situation that was um, catastrophic um, for so many, um, so many families and, um, and our community and, and myself and, 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 and really, not um, not having the tools to manage it, like feeling completely rudderless in terms of being able to um, to be able to move forward with um, with clarity, with integrity, with honesty, with I spent many years just kind of hiding in the shadows afterwards, um, which was a, a really uncomfortable place to to reside um, yeah it was a turning point
0: yeah um, I'm curious about and I asked you this question as kind of a prelude right before we came on live the question of the meaning of that incident for you and the maybe the change in meaning over time. And so you mention, you know, not having the tools, being a bit rudderless immediately afterwards and then spending some time in the shadows for, you know, a few years or a prolonged period of time in the shadows to then writing about it, um, getting it out and I guess stepping into um stepping into that experience in a different way, or maybe the meaning of that experience, I'm assuming has changed over time, but I'm curious about that journey. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I think it'll lead us into a conversation about what you're doing now and helping other people make meaning of their journeys. Um, what, mm-hmm. how that, how's the meaning of that experience, that chapter in your life changed over time?
1: I think that um, immediately post incident, I was inhabiting a victim mindset, even though I was working and being paid, um, yeah, like I, I perceived that I was, as an assistant guide, I perceived that I was kind of forced into the situation and, and I perceived that um, um, that I didn't have a choice and that it was, it was a horrible thing that, you know, this thing happened to me. Um, and then, but also, you know, kind of mixed in with, you know, why did I survive? Um, and, and also, you know, kind of layers of confusion around, well, you know, I never really, I never really, I thought if something terrible was going to happen in the mountains, I thought I wouldn't survive it. And then feeling shocked and dismayed that I did survive it. Um, yeah, you know, though, you know, that was the place that I inhabited for probably a good uh, eight or nine years post incident, um, or post tragedy. And, and, um, and, and it was easy to, it was an easy place to inhabit because people who knew me and people who, you know, friends and family and colleagues, um, it was easy to reinforce the person I'd always been. And, but it was a profoundly powerless place. Um, I didn't have, yeah, I, I, it was something that happened to me as opposed to something that, um, like I, at the time I didn't understand that I created it. I totally created it. It created this situation that was, was catastrophic and I didn't understand that. And, and that's a really powerless place to be, mm-hmm. um, And so the process of writing, you know, I perceive that that's where the story begins because that's the story of, of gaining my own power of, and, and, and it was accountability, being accountable that was a gift of that.
0: Can we hit hit the pause button for a second? And I'm curious, I'm curious about like, there's another turning point in there somewhere about the decision to write the the story, write the book, and take mm. some accountability and shift out of that victim narrative or whatever had you know been, been your your path. What what was that moment? Can you pinpoint that moment? Was there a turning point moment that is fairly concrete or did it like tell me more about that decision to go down the to change the path?
1: Uh it was profoundly concrete. I think that I was I was really sick. Um, I had joint pain everywhere. I had a frozen right shoulder, and then one day my back went out, and I collapsed on my home office floor. And the words "Okay, I'll write" came out of me. <laughs> Doesn't get more concrete than that. <clears throat> and and of course, you know, right? It's not like I sat down the next day and I you know produced a book. It was okay. I've articulated this. Now I need to make this happen. And you know it fits and starts. And then finally I settled into it and committed. And it took a lot more than I anticipated. Um, Yeah, I think that, um, well, one, the process of writing is profoundly healing. Like if I think as human beings, if we, if we want to be heard, the page is the place to start. Like, the page is like an ear. It's like, and, and in this case, it's, you know, the keyboard and screen. But it's just the greatest listener ever. And, and, and the process of, of writing was one where I started to hear myself. And I could see myself reflected back to me. And the process of shifting from victim to kind of the owner of my story um, was one where, you know, backspace and delete was a big part of the process. It's like, okay, there's the victim again. Okay, I need to, you know, backspace and delete. And does that mean that I, you know, don't ever send an angry email? No. No. I'm still a human being but um but that process of writing and was was incredibly powerful and much longer than I anticipated I figured okay at the start I figured okay in 6 months I'll have a book it took me 3 years and 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 it took me as long as it needed for me to go through a process of, of shifting. And was it uncomfortable? Yeah. It was, it was, it was uncomfortable. You know, that, I think that that's why I say I work with the brave because that whole process is actually an act of bravery to sit down and to be honest with ourselves. It's an act of bravery. Um, and yeah, and so that there was a, a key moment where, and and the the pieces behind that is this idea that I was being guided. Um, you know, Gabor Maté writes about how you know the body stores stores trauma, and wherever it's, wherever it's been traumatized is that's where we where we um, we start to um, experience illness. And I, and when I had a frozen right shoulder, um, I remember saying that to a friend of mine, he said, Oh, the right shoulder, that means that you have wisdom to share with the world that you're holding back on. And, and so, you know, these messages kept coming like, okay, keep going, keep going through this process. Keep, um, keep writing. And I, and I, and I wrote myself back to hell. Um, and so I think that that's um, yeah, our bodies are, are a profound messenger.
0: So this, where does this place us in the journey? You took three years to write. You started at eight or nine years. We're coming up on 2015?
1: Yeah, 2014 is when the book was published. Okay. Um, and and, you know, the process continues because when we went to um, to re-release the book this year. Um, there was a couple of cha- chapters to add, which were um, were important. Um, the last chapter of the book now visits goes down to Truckee, California, where I um, in 2014, I gave a book presentation and I. Um, that community lost Kathy Kessler in the avalanche. And, you know, it's in hindsight, it's, it's, it's really kind of, I, I booked a, a, a reading at a bookstore down in Truckee, California. I got down there, we pushed the bookshelves aside. We put up a bed sheet, I set up my projector. And yet in the audience was Kathy's 90 year old mom, two sisters her brother and her widower and they waited 12 years to find out how Kathy died and in the last chapter is entitled grace they were so graceful to me Um, they could have chosen to treat me badly but instead they just thanked me for coming down and telling them how Kathy died. Now it's a, a story about how you know, kind of in the in the industry we can lose our humanity through the legal process. And then we can lose our humanity through fear. Um, and that's that's a pretty powerless powerless place to inhabit um, being fearful and and then losing our humanity and so um, you know kind of the way the legal system works is when there's a big um tragedy and in, in mountain guiding here in western canada um, our insurance is void if we speak if we say anything about the about the accident or tragedy um, before two years is up, before the statute of limitations. Um, insurance companies are concerned that um, there'll be a big payout if information is given to um, to families that lost somebody. Um, and yet, when we're quiet for two years, we get used to that. And so... That becomes, that becomes what, what's done. And, and so um, they waited 10 more, 10 additional years before really finding out, you know, how we made errors.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. There's so much to unpack in, in your journey and so many lessons I think for, you know, not just for the, the mountain guiding community, and this community mm-hmm. like that that community there's certainly things we could dig into there around risk and decision making and you know all those factors that drive mm-hmm. decision making there um let's maybe pivot just a, for a second into when you talk about working with the brave and you talk about journeys of transformation like what and, and giving people maybe the tools that you didn't have early on in, in your journey after the Mm -hmm. after the tragedy um what are some of the core tools or skill sets that you think are most valuable for someone who's on a journey of transformation or is ready to embark on a reckoning with their with their past and that are at maybe a turning point in life what kind of i guess i don't know skills or tools do you find yourself most often working on
1: well i think that um I think that myself, when I, I came to a, a place where I realized, this is so much bigger than what I have in my toolbox, and so I think that that's that's a, a, an important place to start from is recognizing that okay, this is really big, and and I need to I I need resources I need I need to be able to gain some leverage with this situation. And, and, and that probably starts with understanding. And so my own journey was one where I went to, you know, I went to Yashodra Ashram for three months and I went down to the Amazon basin and I drank ayahuasca and, you know, I was was searching for tools. I, I would visit, um, um, a shaman, you know, regularly in Southern Alberta. Um, and so, um, and so the search, um, the shift from I have this sorted out to, oh boy, this is way bigger than, than I think I can manage on my own. I, I need some help. That shift, that paradigm shift from I got this to "Who this is big. Um, and there's a there's a profound humility that comes from that. Um, you know, I mentioned I, I in collapsed in pain on my home office floor, and the words "Okay, all right" came out of me. Um, that's a humbling experience, and so typically it is the humbling experience that kind of brings us to this place that we're we're ready. Um, and and what's interesting is if. If what we're experiencing isn't humbling enough, then I, I think we can rest be rest assured that something bigger will happen until we're humbled enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this it's interesting, this you know, kind of spirituality of um, imperfection, which is the book I'm reading right now, it's really profound from the standpoint of we spend so much of our lives trying to be perfect. And, and if there is imperfection, then we sometimes try and cover it up. Um, but when we can just embrace that, wow, you know, I have so much to learn. And I need tools and I need teachers. And I need to um, not, only, not only engage in conversations that are meaningful, um with with peers but have a, have an elder in, in my in my life um and i have one in my life that and her name is mary and she's fantastic she's in her seventies and um she's a direct a, a spiritual director and she helps me with all kinds of things um and <clears throat> and so that that humbling experience is the is probably And and the tool of recognizing that wow I need I need resources, the recognition that I need a toolbox is the place to start. Um. And then probably, you know, for me, acceptance. Acceptance is a big word. Um. And as opposed to denial, I guess the shadow side of acceptance is, is denial. Um, and I probably lived in denial for a really long time post-incident it, um, where, oh, this isn't really affecting me much. But really, it, it shook me to the core of my being. and And accepting that was the start of the big, brave journey um, that hasn't been easy, it hasn't been easy at all. It's probably been the most difficult thing thing that um, um, I've ever done. And, and what's fascinating is sometimes we'll see, you know, spiritual teachers, they'll speak about how if we wake up, then life is so much better. Um, going on a spiritual journey is one where, um, we're choosing to engage with the, the really pithy stuff of life. And we're choosing to engage at taking some pretty hard looks at ourselves. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, you know, the metaphor of the mountaineer is, you know, there's a lot of pain that mountaineers go through to do their thing. And um, the human journey, um, and I—the human journey is a spiritual journey. We're all on some sort of spiritual journey, whether we recognize it or not. Um, it's hard. It's hard work. And some days we're we're brought to the the um, the edge of edge of things that just scares the. <laughs> scares the daylights out of us. But with those challenges comes a deep richness. Um and and so it's worth it. It's worth the hard work, it's worth the you know the slogging away in the mud and and um you know kind of difficulty of it all. It's it's hard work. Um, and yet, um, being able to feel deeply pain, um, discomfort, grief, just means that we feel joy. We feel elation. We feel um oh
0: yeah and that <laughs> yeah i'm reminded i think it's another gabor monte quote actually or something i read in in one of his books around you know our our attempts to escape pain are like basically drive all of our pain all of our pain in life can be directly traced to our efforts to alleviate our pain through through methods that other than actually dealing with the pain, right? We, we try all these things to, to escape our pain, to minimize our pain, to deny our pain, to, yeah. you know, you know, the roots of addiction really. And that's my background, you know, a good chunk of my background professionally has been working in, in addictions and, you know, most drugs of abuse, most substances of abuse are painkillers, right? And we're just trying to numb some pain. We're trying to escape that for, for a temporary escape from our pain. And you're right. Like the hard work of actually turning inwards that journey inside to get to the roots of that pain and to root it out and to get a, like develop a relationship with it and to have a conversation with it. Um, whether or not you write a book about it or not, I think like that journey is oh, yeah. um, that's a hard one. And a lot of us and probably self-included in lots of ways I can, I can point to my own life and say, yeah, I've avoided pain here and I've tried to escape it here. And, and, you know, an elder in my life, but previously it was a, an indigenous elder that used to consult for our program. He'd say, you know, you can run from it, but it's just going to keep like that wall is just, you're going to keep hitting that same wall until you actually face it and deal with it. And sure enough, like that's what happens. Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, my journey with medication was adventure. Like I don't think that I was ever one to abuse substances. Um, okay. I'm probably guilty of abusing alcohol from time to time as a, you know, 20 and 30 year old, but um um adventure was my medication absolutely um, and and interestingly there were times in my life where there's no way I could possibly stop adventuring and it was you know it was having an impact on my life a negative impact on my life and I think that the the avalanche tragedy was a symptom of that it was um, um it, it it just kind of now I see it as, okay, so this is how, how negative adventure was in my life. Um, I was, I wasn't able to see how I was engaging with this incredibly powerful thing and, and a slave to achievement. I was, I was more afraid of failure, um, not not in in other people's eyes um yeah I was more physically courageous and willing to step into ridiculous situations um than I was able to say this is a ridiculous situation and I'm not doing this and so I had a a profound you know misunderstanding of what real courage was and and real courage is real power. And it doesn't mean that we're devoid of fear at all. It means that, um, that we step into our power um, and we, we have good boundaries and we decide when something is for us and when something isn't for us. Um, and that's a, that's a profound lesson that adventure has to teach us is Okay. Do we understand courage in a way that's deeper than just physical? Do we understand social courage? Do we understand intellectual courage? Do we understand emotional courage? Can we articulate our fears to our friends and be honest and courageous about them? You know those those other elements to courage, I think are are um, you know kind of another powerful tool in the toolbox nowadays. Um, that brings deeper awareness into kind of the
0: human journey. Well, let's jump back into your journey. So we took a little detour and let's go back to 2014 and the book has been published for the first time. And what was that like? What was that experience like? Cause I imagine it's one thing to spend some time writing it and it's your private journal at that point it's just a journey that you're on and then suddenly it's out in the world and for people to respond to and for you to have you know you're now engaging these ideas and this experience kind of back into the world um what was that experience like for you
1: um i i needed to come face to face with so in the writing process i came face to face with myself and this was coming face to my, face to face with myself and others. And um, I think it was a um, a profound deepening of my understanding of who my friends were, um, who the who the people. Um, that would stand beside me when I could tell my truth. Yeah, I think that, um, and it was incredibly frightening um, because I also found out who my friends weren't. Um, And, but... You know, grappling with that and wrestling with that was kind of another stage in in the journey of my of of recognizing my own power, um, and and you know what's really interesting is that I think that human beings need to evolve to the point where we can under we can hear another perspective and incorporate it as. Part of the true, the larger truth. Um, instead of, yeah, you know, I think that you know the the evolution of you know, of human beings is really in need of that, so that we, um, so that we can make peace, you know, kind of on the political stage or on the relationship stage, or and so, um. I think that my book, you know, when it was released, was a little bit polarizing. Um,
0: and you in know, what it's, in what ways was it because you decided to take some accountability and some ownership in an industry that doesn't like to do that, or um, to admit some vulnerability and be kind of open to that in a, you know, traditionally less vulnerable, um, I guess, mindset in, in the, in the industry, what was polarizing about your book? Do you think, or were, have you just like determined,
1: um, the narrative that the, the mountain guiding industry has subscribed to when tragic events happen is that the mountains are dangerous. Hmm. And, and that is true. The mountains are dangerous. Um and when we when we begin our journey into the mountains on a on a given day and we we say, Okay, so how are the mountains gonna kill us today' And then we work our way backwards from there, we then we then end up with a um, a profoundly powerful um kind of process for managing risk um as opposed to saying to ourselves, Oh, we got this, and getting totally blindsided so. Being able to identify, you know, from the from the outset, how that the mountains are dangerous and they, they you know they might kill us today. So how are we going to manage that? That's that's profoundly powerful. Post incident, um, if we say, well, the mountains are dangerous and this is going to happen, um, yes, that is a truth, but we forfeit any learning that will become apparent or can become apparent if we are accountable. And that that accountability is, you know, the word accountability is actually quite frightening. Like if you if I said to my my myself 10 days my my now self said to my myself my two thousand and three self ten 10 days after the Avalanche tragedy, well you're gonna have to be accountable for this there's no way I could possibly have heard that Mm -hmm. because what, what I understood accountability to mean is you're going to be punished for this. Mm -hmm. And accountability is not punishment. It has nothing to do with punishment and it it has everything to do with, and you know, that's another way that as humans, we we do need to grow is that punishment doesn't work, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, you know, in, some, in many ways, we ended up in World War II because of, um, you know, what happened post-World War I and Germany was punished. And so it just left anger and, and bitterness and, and resentment. Um, those, are the, those are the seeds that fuel all of that. But, um, you know, the, um, the accountability and its meaning and so the industry, as it defines, well, the mountains are dangerous and let's just move on and, you know, that there's nothing to be learned here, um, that's that's the narrative that the industry ascribed to in 2003 or subscribed to in 2003. And and it's changing. It's getting better. Um, accountability is still a scary thing. Um, um but it's liberating and it's what families of victims needed. Um, They just typically just want to know what happened. Most of us can understand what it's like to be human. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a, there's an ethical piece too in all of this in that if we choose to not be accountable then it's more likely that whatever transpired is going to happen again. Um, Yeah. And so, um, you know, that piece of the journey of be becoming accountable um, has given me a ton of tools for seeing when situations are kind of, When the when the recipe for disaster is emerging,
0: mm-hmm. and um, what is that recipe for disaster? From I guess the human the human side of that equation, because obviously there's lots of ways in which the mountains can kill us, and we try and mitigate against that. But having traveled lots in the mountains and guided a bit in the mountains and worked with youth in the mountains, I can most of the incidents, if not all of them, I mean, they're, they're human error, they're human, they're hubris, their ego, they're not paying attention to details, they're poor decision-making their group think there's lots of things that combine to form poor decisions and accidents and or incidents tragedies in the mountains. But you know, what are some of those, those top line things that you're looking for? So you're out with a group or you're, you're in a decision you need to make. What are some of those ingredients in that recipe that lead to tragedy or does that, or potential for, for that?
1: Um, they're denial. So denial of the conditions, denial of um, communicating with others, denial of other people's opinions. They're the denial of um, of maybe the avalanche forecast and its severity. They're the denial of the weather conditions. They're the you know they're you know not paying, not accepting what, not being tuned in to what is happening and accepting what is happening. And responding to it with um, clarity and um, and acceptance. And so, you know, maybe the one thing that we do need to deny sometimes is our desires. Um, and then there's then there's a faint-heartedness, like you know, in kind of a group situation. You know, some people might be pushing forward and denying conditions and there's going to be some people that can see what's happening, but they don't speak up because they lack the courage to. And so that faint heartedness is something that is is um, is a a piece of the recipe. It's a shadow side of ourselves that that, um, you know, kind of works into kind of the decision making process. And we and and. We have a responsibility to share how we perceive things for our own selves, um, for our own protection, but also for the protection of the group. There's there's a there's an ethical piece there for us to, you know, to speak up. We have a responsibility to speak up. Um, Disconnection. So, you know, oftentimes when when groups get into trouble, it's because they're fractured. They're not working together. They're not communicating. They're not paying attention to what other people are saying. They're not. So there's, you know, and there's, there's, you know, Brene, Brene Brown talks about um, or writes about and has studied vulnerability and that unwillingness to be vulnerable in a situation. But then that lack of vulnerability means that we're not connecting in powerful ways and communicating really well in high risk situations. Um, yeah um the ability to tell the truth deception we might deceive ourselves about how we're how we're feeling or what we see or oh well, that won't be a big deal um, and so that that either self- deception or dece- deceiving um, others um the mountains are always trying to tell us the truth they never lie, right like Um, people die in the mountains and the mountains are just there and they, they don't ever lie about the fact that people die in them. Um, And so the process of learning to tell the truth and being, and and not deceiving, I think is one of the lessons that the mountains are trying to teach us. Um, um, Hubris, as you mentioned, you know, kind of the flip side of that is grace, but hubris wow, you know, the the old story of Icarus, right? Like, you know, his father Daedalus gives him a set of wings and he he is told by his father, the wings have feathers on them that are attached with wax. And if you fly too close to the sun, the wax will melt, the feathers will come off and you'll crash and you'll probably die. Um, And, of course, Icarus flies too close to the sun because he's you know stricken with hubris he wants to push the limits and of course the wax melts and the feathers come off and he falls into what's now called the Icarian sea and today we have this we want technology to save us from our hubris it's almost as if Icarus is falling to the sea and he says to himself, Daedalus should have used epoxy instead of wax. <laughs> and, you know, so many of these tools that we use in avalanche terrain, like transceivers and avalanche airbags. And, you know, when we look at that deep, more deeply, um, you know, is it protecting us from our own hubris? And, and is it actually making a difference or is it exacerbating the problem?
0: Um, I mean, there's good research that shows that with the, the advent of seatbelts, people start driving and with like, like better braking systems and like better technology in cars, we just drive more recklessly, right. We drive faster and we take corners faster and we, you know, and it's, there's a, there's a threshold, I guess, a risk tolerance that we, you know, we just keep bumping it up and up and up. Right. And I think that's been the history when you, when you look at the, you know, extreme sports or, you know, the more of the adrenaline sports in any of them take skiing or biking or you know paragliding or any of these things it's a constant evolution of risk taking Mm -hmm. pushing that boundary i think that shifts all of the risk threshold for everybody further than than we're capable for like we don't have the operating system right we're not wired to take those kind of risks in groups in in the mountains or you know wherever we find ourselves Um, yeah yeah
1: risk homeostasis where you know our set point for risk is we always find that, regardless. And if you're right, and if we if we want a net um, gain in safety, when we add a safety tool, that means that we, we try and have the same behavior that we had before the new safety tool. Um, so if I if I my risk tolerance of driving on icy streets with my summer tires is, you know, forty kilometers an hour. Then I put winter tires on. I've got to stay at 40 kilometers an hour. Then I have a net gain in safety, yeah. but we don't use our tools that way. <laughs> we, no. we trick our, we trick ourselves. You know, another, um, another thing that gets us into trouble is um, we, you know, when I think of my younger self, I, I self-identified as a climber or a backcountry skier. And when we, when, when we, attach our identity to the thing that we do then succeeding becomes more important so it's super important to understand that we are a person who climbs or we are a person that backcountry skis and that distinction is
0: really important because so i got i gotta pause you because that's so fascinating because our approach in addictions treatment was you're a person who uses drugs you're not an addict you're not a drug addict you're a person who uses right we have to separate Absolutely. behavior from the individual and so that yeah that's sorry go on but that was just a, something i had to, to oh
1: that's brilliant i love it because because yeah. it's true because if you identify as a as a i'm an addict
0: then who what, what are you if do? you're not what addicts do they use drugs what do backcountry skiers do
1: they ski right? they ski and i must get to the top and so when i when i teach avalanche courses um Last year, I was out, I was out with a group, and I I it was an avalanche course, and we were in, on this peak or near this peak, and I stopped and had lunch, probably fifty meters below the summit, and then I stripped my skins, and I could actually see people twitching, <laughs> like uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, aren't we going to the summit? And it's like, no, no, we're not going to the summit. But but why? It's right there. It's like, well, this is actually a practice, you know. And a really important lesson, like the summit's not important. The summit means nothing, right? And if we're, you know, the sides of Mount Everest are covered in bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I, you know, part of it has to be that people self-identify with, I am a mountaineer and the mountaineers make it to the summit. And so the, the risk tolerance goes through the roof when we put our identity to the thing that we're doing um that's a, a recipe for disaster
0: and that seems like not to digress or but maybe to expand that or make that idea portable i think that i see that kind of across the board where we identify as a thing and you know we've we've identified addict and we've identified skier but anything we do any way we typecast ourselves or label ourselves and connect our identity to a profession or a pursuit of something i think there's danger in that and sometimes Absolutely. the dangers aren't as obvious as addicts and, and backcountry skiers, um, but I, I think they're they're just as as limiting, or just as um, yeah, just as dangerous, probably to the to the human to the journey that we're on and getting us stuck in that journey, right? I know that's been a journey that I've been on is recognizing that I carry I, I inhabit multiple roles, lots of different roles in life, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I'm not any one of them right? They're a piece of me or their behaviors that I engage in or things I do. But when we can remove ourselves from that and become the observer of ourselves, right? Then we can start to sense make, then we can start to make meaning and then we can start to make better decisions. I think at the end of the day, right? What Mm -hmm. would, what would rational Jeff think about this, that I'm like emotional Jeff decision that's about to happen, right?
1: Well, it's interesting because I mean, that's that you're, you're right. And I think that that's why people struggle with so many different aspects or transitions in their lives, when people get to retirement. Um, it's like, okay, now who, there's an identity crisis. Like, who am I now that I'm not, you know, a doctor or a lawyer? Um, who who am I? And so I think to do that work, um, to you know, breathe space into um, this idea of who we are is really important. You know, I think that if I if I identify myself as a backcountry skier and that you know becomes my sole identity, it's actually really limiting, really limiting, and and um, and it it leads to a feeling of insignificance. But we're so much more. We're so much more than what we do. Um, you know, there's a tragic story of an of you know Dave Thompson in the in the Bow Valley who. Um, climbed waterfall ice and then ended up with an injury that left him paralyzed and he committed suicide and it's it's tragic, right it's we're so much more we're so much more than and and in some ways we can lose our humanity in in these these small kind of small definitions of ourselves because they become they can become so important for us that we um we have a hard time when we fail. We have a hard time when somebody does better than us. We have a hard time, yeah, this, this thing that's meant to be beautiful in life in our lives, this thing we call adventure, um, can be a real source of you know kind of unnecessary pain.
0: Attachment to the outcome or attachment to the status that comes with the outcome. Right. And there's, yeah, having spent, you know, I didn't get too deep into the mountain guiding kind of culture. I was in my early twenties before I kind of did that side detour into addiction treatment. And that's a very different, and actually it was interesting to me because we would hire guides and we would hire social workers or addictions counselors and, Without a doubt, it was easier for me to teach social workers the basic skills they needed to get kids safely around the woods than it was to teach a mountain guide how to tap into their emotional side and to work with people on a journey of transformation <laughs> and not fixate the entire group on getting to the summit. Like you say that like that is just it's, it's, a, it's an interesting it was an interesting dichotomy to watch play itself out in amongst a staff team that was usually made up of kind of 50 50 of kind of both stripes we ended up migrating to be honest to more towards teaching people the wilderness skills they needed to travel safely but to make sure they had the decision making skills the risk assessments the you know the soft skills the soft group management like those types of things um, were inherently more important for the work that we were doing obviously the less technical, mm-hmm. less technical work so um, interesting why don't we well, respond to that or respond what's, you're about to say something. So I'll let you say that. And then.
1: Well, well, it's interesting because what it brings up is this idea that, you know, adventure is a, it is a really powerful tool for, you know, educational change. Mm-hmm. But it, it all depends on how we enter into adventure. If we enter into it as a practice for transformational change for ourselves, then, then the risk actually becomes worth it. Right? Like the risks that we take, all of the effort that we put in, in driving all the resources that we use to get there. If if it's changing us fundamentally, you know, kind of how we engage with, you know, people in our relationships and how we engage with people at work and how we engage. If it's helping us, um, you know, become more aware of how we're engaging and how we're showing up, Um then, then the risk is worth it. And so I've always believed that, you know, adventure needed a better, um, deserved a better place in our society. Um, it's often seen as, well, this kind of frivolous thing that, you know, people do that has no meaning. And I think that, you know, this narrative that it has no meaning is, is um, misguided. Um, I think it probably stems from this idea that, Well, actually, I don't want to kind of go down the path of learning about, you know, how to be a better individual that contributes, you know, beautiful things to society. Um, But if adventure becomes a practice, then it actually steps into its own power in our society. Um, It actually becomes a, a powerful tool that that human beings use. Um, for educational change. And the other piece that makes it really important is that the arena is real. In a world that is so filled with, you know, buffers and, you know, things that that aren't real, um, it, it is real and it has real consequence and there's real we feel the power of of the mountains and we feel the power of the situations that we get into. And we recognize that, well, boy, you know, we better make some good choices here because if we don't, we're going to pay some deep consequences. All of that is so needed Mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a, um, it's a training arena for exactly what humanity is facing, right? Like we're about to face real consequence. And, and if, if we can't, and that, that ability to kind of manage the risk begins with us. That's where it all begins. It's not about, you know, well, we need to, we need to get carbon lower. It's well, we we need the will to change our behavior to have the courage to face a bit of pain in that change and that in order to make better decisions. And so this, 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 this thing of adventure to me is probably one of the most important and powerful tools that we have um, for educational change because the consequences are real. Um, But often we We treat it like a place of consumption
0: instead. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting insight because I think, you know, short of going to war, right, short of being involved in in a war, I think adventure is about as close as we get to real consequences and accountability and ownership. And like you say, the arena, like being actual real arena with real consequences. And that's a, that, of course, is, uh, is a lot of the appeal, for people from a transformative like, transformation perspective, but it also, it, it raises the stakes for adventure. And that, Cause that's what I'm hearing you say is like, we need to raise the stakes in society about what adventure is for and what the mm-hmm. power of adventure could be for us. It's not just a place of entertainment and frivolity and, you know, heli skiing because you've got lots of money to burn. Right. And you want to go out and play for a week. Right. And it's, it's, it's so much more
1: than that. There's so much more that than that, and and um, yeah, you know, I, I remember the I I received my degree from the University of Calgary. It was in the Physical Education Department, and it was an outdoor pursuits route. And you know, when I graduated in you know 1990. Um, that program was a degree program and there was a master's degree program. And, and what was interesting was within the institution, the outdoor program was kind of always on a limb um, because it was, oh, it's that outdoor stuff. But, um, but. And it ended up that limb, it ended up for the University of Calgary that that limb was sawed off. Um, a dean was demoted from medicine and came over to to um, physical education. And and um, he didn't really understand the the value of this. And and so um, but I think that as adventurers. We do our our passion a disservice. And I certainly did my my passion a disservice by not entering into kind of wow, you know, this is something where I'm, I'm meant to become more aware of why I make decisions, um, how I make decisions, and, you know, what what shadow elements are kind of playing into my decision-making process? How do I enter into a decision-making process with hubris, or disconnection, or denial, or, you know, deception? You know, how do I how do I do those things and how do they um, you know, kind of undermine this whole adventure process? Um, yeah. It's about developing ourselves.
0: It really is. Yeah. And not just like there's the development of self, but there's the accelerated development of self. I always thought of our adventure, like our wilderness therapy program. It's not that we couldn't get to the same places given enough time in a in a room with a a bunch of kids or a gymnasium or a a city park or whatever, you know, other venue we could have chosen, but there is something very, you know, accelerant in nature about sitting around Mm. a campfire, right. Sitting around a campfire every Sunday night by a lake with the mountains in the background, talking about life was somehow, and then, you know, going climbing or going paddling or somewhere where the stakes were real. And these things went from theory, you know, I theoretically, I'm going to behave this way to I have to behave this way. Now there was something, you know, that I thought about like adventure really accelerates that journey for, I think mm-hmm. for people, or can when facilitated and when intentionally done and it's not just recreational. Right. And, you know, I used to get pushback back often from various places, you know, parents or funders or people who didn't understand what we were, you know, trying to accomplish. And they'd ask about the risks, the risks involved with taking mm-hmm. kids. And, you know, luckily we never lost a kid um, while I was there. I don't think Enviros has lost um, anyone in like a, in a tragedy But that was always the concern. Right. And the legitimate concern we were we were doing things that were theoretically riskier than, you know, being in the city. But my response is always like, well, how risky is it to smoke crack cocaine? Right. When you're 16 years old or to steal cars and joyride in them while you're while you're drunk or to engage in gang related behaviors like all of these things are risky, like way more risky inherently than any adventure that we can possibly put these kids through. While they're under our care, and so if there's a perception of risk that we could probably talk about around what's real risk and what's perceived risk, because I think that a, a mismatch. But I, th- I think that probably often what happens for adventurers is that their perception of risk is actually lower than the than the real risk. Right? When you say that we're ignoring signs and symptoms and all of these things, and for people who don't understand adventure, they might have a misperception in the other direction, where they perceive it to be much riskier than it is because they see headlines and they see tragedies and they see. They're kind of the glorified, the extreme side of sports or the extreme side of adventure. Um, Let's talk, maybe let's talk a little bit about risk perception and how Mm -hmm. do we get, how do we get better at, you know, accurately identifying risk and, and then, you know, the assessment and and management side.
1: It's interesting. The, the word risk is, is um, it means um, possibility of good or bad, like, You know, the risk is risk just means unknown. Mm. And so from that place of the unknown, there's a possibility that there could be a a negative outcome and there's a possibility that there's a positive outcome. And, you know, even in our society, the word risk is often used um, to kind of denote the negative, the potential for negative. Ooh, well, that's a risk, I don't, I don't, I don't, we don't want to ex- be exposed to the risk. But risk, ultimately, that unknown, stepping into the unknown, um, is, is a human skill set that must be developed. The, the artist that, you know, is a painter, but they never show anybody their work that's that's risk management like they're they're not exposing themselves to any risk right like nobody's ever going to comment on their artwork because they never show it to anybody but but for that artist to to fully engage in their their passion it's it's, it's got to be put out there it 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 must be put out there and and through that process they might actually have dialogue and learn more about you know what what needs to happen and so anybody that has an idea that's different than the status quo that is a risk and so we we must engage in risk as a, as a society right and and really understand what risk is it's it's a step into the unknown now if we want to talk about managing it we might more clearly been playing with this idea and it might not be right, but I'll, I'll say it. It's like consequence, negative consequence management, right? So more clearly it's like, okay, so we're going to be engaged in some consequence management because we want to be able to do this thing that has risk associated with it. So what we want to do is focus on the negative consequences and then back engineer behaviors that will keep us from those negative consequences. Um, And I think that that, that that risk perception starts with understanding risk, and understanding the definition of risk, and understanding that it is desperately important for human beings to take risks. Absolutely. Now, what your your um, your example was really interesting in that organizations. Um, are faint-hearted. So, and that's what your description of, well, what about the risks of this person using crack cocaine, right? Like we're we're trying to create an intervention for them, and that intervention has risks associated with it. We're stepping into the unknown, um, but we're heading this this tragedy off at the pass because if we do nothing, that's where it's going. We, but interestingly. If we do nothing, if we just step away, the institution that we work for, and in this case, in baros, wouldn't be held accountable.
0: Exactly. All roads, it seems, are leading us back to taking accountability and uh, what happens, like the, the benefits and the, the transformation for not, yes. just, not just individuals to take accountability, but for our institutions and our systems and our groups of people to take accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so... Um, we need courageous institutions that have the ability to offer situations that you know students or participants or or even you know it might be a corporation um, engage in in risk behavior the step into the unknown manage the consequences as best we're able so that we maximize the the positive outcomes. Um, And so this idea of risk management or this um, idea of, um, you know, perception of risk. um, What are the risks to people's soul? if we don't have human beings engage um, or what are, what are the potential consequences to people's soul if we don't engage? Um, That's, that's incredibly important. Now, um, the conversation of risk perception is, is a really interesting one because we all have different risk tolerances. And so, um, and what better practice to engage in than a conversation about risk tolerance um, with our friends, with our loved ones, with our yeah, and and that ain't that um, exchange about risk tolerance is is how we learn to connect as human beings. Um, Yeah. Being able to say, wow, you know, this situation seems to be to have too much consequence looming for me. And I need to kind of do something different and having the compassion as a co-participant in that situation, maybe they're a group that's gone out ski touring and one person says, you know, this slope just seems to have too much consequence for me. What a beautiful thing to then say, to honor that and say, yeah, I don't need to ski this slope. You're more important to me than skiing this slope. Um, What a, what a great maturation process, right? Instead of, kicking and screaming and saying, I want to ski this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Or, or skiing it anyway, right. Splitting the group up and, and,
1: and skiing it, it anyway,
0: disconnecting, right. That's yeah. yeah. I feel like we could talk about this all for the rest of the night, but I do want to honor your time. I got a few questions that I want to wrap up with around. Okay. Um, one is that the journey that you're on now. So we, we got to about the, the release of the book in 2014 or so. (laughs) I do want to get us up to current day as best we can. Um, So you released the book and you've embarked. So so tell me more about the journey of, I guess the shift for you in adventure in the more traditional sense of the kind of the guiding industry and to the intentional use of adventure and wilderness for transformation and your journey with, archetypal which is uh, which is your company around uh, transform, transformative experiences in in nature and you know, how did that really start how did you go from kind of your own transformation journey now to guide and facilitator of other journeys did you have um was that a, a another abrupt one of those concrete like i need to do this decisions or did it evolve over time through some experiences and what are you doing right now and what are you most excited about right now? I realize there's a whole pile of questions in there that I asked all at once. Yeah. So feel free to,
1: yeah. Um, you know, I think that the trajectory of, of adventure in, in our society is has become more and more about consumption. Um, and there were some experiences I had with some clients out back country skiing over the last few years that, you know, kind of really, um, Really, kind of rattled me to my core again, um, from the perspective of, okay, so there's a lot of pressure to to achieve the the ski run, the, the the steep and the deep, the you know the the GoPro shot from my helmet cam down this incredible run, even when the conditions weren't right, and so there's. You know, kind of a drop in patience especially with the ability to to post our successes there's an incredible pressure to you know be able to social media has has kind of changed the risk for managing consequences deeply mm-hmm. um, and I, I see that there's kind of a, a ramping up of you um, Consumption and and the desire. I think that that's that's kind of being blown out a little bit with you know the the um, the leverage that we have with the communication tools that we have, um, and and recognizing that well you know there's there's something else that's needed. There's something else that that um, that and in reflecting on my own journey of well, you know, this process of writing and reflecting that process was really powerful in my life. And it was really transformational and it really brought me into my own power. And so there's this second piece, this counterpoint to, to the doing, and that's the being and through the being and reflecting on the doing. Wow. You know, there's, there's a lot there. And you know, in my own, my own journey of writing and, and reflecting, I recognized that I had a whole bunch of adventure events that had nothing to do with actually gathered experience. They were events. They were just events. And we, we throw around this word experience. But experience actually means that we have metabolized the event. We've actually made meaning out of it. And that meaning is powerful. And so if we're going to capture, you know, power out of what events we have lived, we have the processes in making meaning of them. And that meaning might be painful. It might be scary. It might be incredibly courageous. That meaning making. And so, that that's where my career is taking me now, down that path of of helping people make meaning out of all of these adventure events that they've gathered over the years, and um, and the transformation that happens in that arena is is really powerful. It's really powerful, um, and and it honors. The place, it brings power to the places because when we make meaning, there's more the The mountains, the rivers, the, the places that we go to, we have a deeper connection to and a deeper respect for because we recognize this place transformed me. And, and it was only asking me to stop long enough to make change this event into experience. Nature is, is, is a incredibly powerful um, educator. And, you know, when we, when we see a mountain lake that is still, it shows us a reflection. And in, in that experience, it's teaching us that in order to reflect ourselves, we have to be still. And so, um, on the side of my truck, it says guided journeys into stillness. And, um, and so that's what I, that's how I use my guiding certification is to bring people to places where we facilitate the stillness and, and help people through that process. Um, and also I, I teach a risk management workshop that, um, over a period of a of several days, we we kind of unpack what we've been talking about in this um, podcast. You know, it's there's a there's a lot to it. You know, when we when we um, reflect on courage and how we've engaged in you know courageous behaviors or faint-hearted behaviors, and and how have our adventures kind of um, you know kind of brought us to a place to reflect on that. And so that's what I'm doing now. Is um, you know i think that in all of it i'm probably more than any time in my life i'm advocating for adventure and its place in our society um but the but both parts of it the act the doing
0: and the reflecting mm-hmm. awesome well I would love to chat again. I might have to have you on the podcast again because we did just kind of scratch the surface of some of these topics (laughs) and I'm sure we could dig in more deeply. And so I look forward to that conversation. Um, I'm going to give you, you know, the last word in the sense that is there a question you want to leave people with who've listened to this, to this point, or, um, something for them to check out uh, a book to read that's had an impact on you. Um, basically anything, a resource, a a question, something you want to leave uh, the listener with tonight.
1: Yeah. um, I'm interested in this idea of the heroic and um, you know, we go out and we go into the mountains and we go onto rivers and we do all these things. And, and in and of themselves, what we're doing is not heroic. If we look at the archetype of the hero, the hero transforms themselves so that they can be of service. And so our, our, our society desperately needs heroes, people who, who have transformed themselves so that they can gift what they know to their communities. And if there's a, if there's a thing that all of this ice climbing or backcountry skiing or paddling or adventuring, or even just our lives, um, if there's something that, that is in, in, if there's some power in that experience it's up. It's up to us to let that power of the experience or that event change us, so that we have deeper gifts to give to our communities, because we're short of heroes.
0: Yeah, no, we we certainly are short of heroes. I think in in modern society, in today's world, it's tough to look around. I, I look around. I find myself looking around, wondering. You know where are the leaders, where are the heroes, where are the people who are stepping up to help us take on these challenges um, that we face um, as, as a species, as, as humanity. So, um, Ken, thank you so much for joining me. I kept you over time, but Hey, it's my podcast. I can run it (laughs) long if I want to, right. Uh, I'll take accountability for it. So, um, uh, if I would love listeners to check out the 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 work that Ken's up to at archetypal.ca and get a copy of the book, it's recently been re released and with some additional chapters, which um, I'm gonna have to pick up a copy and, and read for sure. So, uh, definitely, how about, if
1: I, how about if I send you a
0: signed copy? Oh, well, that would be wonderful! That would be, that would <laughs> Thanks, be great. Jack. No, thank you. Again. <laughs> Appreciate it a lot. And a reminder to listeners, if you're listening to this after the fact, it is a live show every Monday night at 830 Mountain Standard Time. And if you are listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, if you can drop a like or rating or review, that helps reach a wider audience and get conversations like this one with Ken out to a a wider range of people and out into the world in a more meaningful way. So that would mean a lot uh, to me. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll talk to you again. Thank you,
1: Jeff. Thank you so much for doing the work you're doing.
0: Awesome. Thanks,
1: Ken.